Hello, my name is Andrew Gomison, and it is my privilege to welcome you to Culture Watch, a podcast of Speaking for Him. For those that don't know, this is a news and current events podcast, and I produce it because I think it's important for us as Christians to know what's going on around us and to have the proper Christian response to it. So I hope that you enjoy this show, and that if you do, you will pass it on to your family and friends. Because although we are not of the world, we are in the world, and we need to have the proper response to it. So let's look at the news for the week of July 10th. To start out the show this week... We begin in my home state of Michigan, where speculation is brewing that our own governor, Gretchen Whitmer, may be taking a shot at the Democratic nomination in 2024. We don't often see incumbent presidents face formidable primary opponents, but when the incumbent is an 80-year-old who has lost his fastball, that changes things. Joe Biden is weak, and that weakness brings challenges. One of the challengers it could bring would be Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. A new report in Politico is floating the idea. Here's the headline, Bypassing Biden. Democrats think of what could have been. So will Whitmer challenge Biden? Tudor Dixon is a podcast host. She ran for governor against Gretchen Whitmer, and she joins us now. Tudor, it's great to see you this evening. Let's just start with that. Is that even a realistic thing for us to consider? Could Gretchen Whitmer take on Joe Biden in a primary in 2024? Well, I think that could be realistic, or they will just have Joe Biden step aside and open it up to Gretchen Whitmer. I mean, right now, this is the third puff piece on Gretchen Whitmer we've seen. We've seen one in Vanity Fair, one in The Atlantic, and now this political piece, and they're all talking about what a great president she would be. So it seems as though they're setting the American people up for this. They're ready to move her into that position. And somehow they just never mention all of the bad things that have happened in the state of Michigan. Like, since she took office, the economic outlook of Michigan went from a to 36 in the nation. If you are a black student in the state of Michigan, you went from having a 10% in being in the bottom 10 for reading and math proficiency to the bottom five. I mean, the things that she has done to the state of Michigan are not good for the country. They would not be good for national security. Yeah. I got to imagine somewhere Gavin Newsom is wondering why there's all this press for Gretchen Whitmer, because if something does happen to Joe Biden, it's presumed it would be Gavin Newsom. But let's just talk about actually Newsom and Whitmer at the same time, because, you know, I can't imagine there would be national appeal appeal tutor for anyone who embraced such um, draconian lockdown policies during the pandemic as both Newsom and Whitmer. But I got to tell you, I mean, I was also surprised by the midterm results in 2022. So I don't know how Whitmer or Newsom find a national base based upon the way they governed through the pandemic. Well, they do it because they they pick on a couple of social issues and they become champions for that. So they in in the state of Michigan, she became a champion for abortion. She became a champion for repealing right to work, which no state has done in decades. But the state of Michigan has. So she's saying, I'm a champion for the unions. I'm a champion for women. I'm a champion for LGBTQ rights. Okay, so I have a lot that I could say about this. I'm going to try to keep it as brief 
as I can because I do have a lot to cover in this show. But here's the situation. Gretchen Whitmer is not presidential material. The reality is, when we went through the lockdown, Gretchen Whitmer did not pay attention to the legislature. She did not want to go to them to discuss solutions. She wanted to unilaterally make decisions for the state of Michigan. She closed down the state and was consistent in continuing the state of emergency. Not only that, but she was very inconsistent in the fact that she imposed these lockdown procedures on her own citizens while escaping them herself. Her own father was in a nursing home in Florida, and she went and visited him. No one would begrudge her that, except that she was withholding from Michigan citizens the right to see their grandparents and their parents in nursing homes. We had a situation with the economy where the gas prices were getting so exponentially high, and they're still way higher than they should be. And it was proposed by the Michigan legislature that we either rescind sales tax on gas or rescind the gas tax. One of those two things. Michigan has the second or third highest gas tax in the entire nation. I don't remember which, but it's close to 50 cents of gas tax. Gretchen Whitmer took neither of those proposals seriously. Gretchen Whitmer has done very little to even attempt to help the people of Michigan. The reality is that in both her elections, she was able to win on an extremely liberal agenda piece that drove the point home. When she ran in 2018, she won because we were on the brink of legalizing pot in Michigan. And people showed up because they wanted pot legalized in Michigan. Gretchen Whitmer becomes our governor. The 2022 version of that is Proposal 3, which was a mess of a proposal that had like, I don't know, between nine and a dozen provisions within one proposal. And you've heard me talk about that in the past, so I'm not going to belabor the point here. But in both cases, she was able to win on these agenda items. So one of the things that the left is really good at is that they're able to pick one major agenda item on an election cycle and hammer it home and make you forget all the other important issues that we need to deal with. And I never understood, I talked about this earlier in the discussion that I had about the state of the state address earlier in the year where she talked about how great it was that Michigan had full abortion rights and then she turns on a dime and talks about the future Michiganders and the babies that are coming up in Michigan. How do those two things even jive? The reality is that they don't. Here's the thing. If perhaps Gretchen Whitmer were to win the nomination 
and a certain governor from Florida were to win the nomination, them going toe-to-toe in a presidential debate would be television gold. Because he would be able to challenge her directly on how she dealt with COVID versus how he dealt with COVID and the fact that she escaped her own policies to spend time in Florida during the height of the pandemic. I said this when we were going through the lockdown, and this applies more than just to her, so please don't get me wrong. But one of the things I said was when we closed for two weeks to flatten the curve, I said that my hope was that those two weeks would be spent in figuring out a way to open back up safely. How can we alter what we do to make people safer in their everyday lives? Instead, what happened in Michigan and in other places was that they kept extending the lockdown because they said the lockdown is working. But the thing is, if we stay locked in our homes, yes, certain numbers of casualties and illness are going to go down, but they're artificial because as soon as you release the lockdown and people are around one another again, those things are going to shoot up at least to a degree. The reality is that eventually we've gotten to a place where we know more about COVID, it still exists, but we know more about COVID and its treatment, and we're able to treat it much more like a regular illness. I still remember when my sister got it, and I had to be home for like three weeks from work because of it. Because I had to wait for her to get well, and then I had to go through a 10-day mandatory period to make sure that I wasn't sick. Now, it happened to correspond with another shutdown of the schools, and so I didn't really miss a whole lot of work. But I remember being really frustrated by that. And I think that as we look to the future, we need to realize that we need people that get things done. And it just seems to me like... Gretchen has had uh, excuse after excuse for not getting things done, and now people are saying that she should be the leader of the free world. I think that's a very scary proposition. And I will never understand how a whole party of the United States would make a future based on killing their prospective voters. I will never understand that. That will be something that will confound me for the duration of time here on earth, time immemorial. And so I really think we need to pray about the future of our country. I say it a lot, but as we are going into this election cycle, and I realize it gets a little frustrating because the election cycle gets more and more Pervasive, and it seems to get longer every single time. We're already looking at a Republican national debate next month, so that is something to be aware of. Uh, but no, I do not think that Gretchen Whitmer is right for America, and I'm really sad and disappointed that even though more than a million people signed a petition 
to take away at least some of Whitmer's power when it came to the lockdown, they still voted her in when we came to 2022. And that is something that I'm still having difficulty wrapping my mind around. But again, I do think a lot of it was motivated by Proposal 3, which was purposely clear as mud. The next story that I want to bring to your attention is a story that is becoming more and more common, which is people being able to steal from a store with little to no consequences, and not only that, sometimes the very people that try to stop them are the ones that end up with consequences. America's crime crisis is reaching new highs. The criminals are being let free. The businesses continue to get ransacked, and the cycle continues. And the ones paying the biggest price? The store employees. It feels like they're the only ones that are being punished these days. This year, two women were fired from an Atlanta Lululemon store for intervening in a shoplifting. And the same thing just happened in Colorado. A convenience store employee, Santino Barola, noticed three men walking out to their car with $500 worth of laundry products. So Barola, a former military police officer, follows them out to their car to try to get the license plate, you know, to help identify the perps. And he didn't harass them. He didn't physically engage with them. He just followed them with his cell phone. But luckily, the thieves were a little clumsy and had a little trouble making a clean escape. Damn, these guys are good. Look at them stealing. Really, bro? You got to resort to this? Economy's not that bad. Oh, damn. And by the way, he took the cover off that plate. So you might be wondering how big of a raise this guy got for catching up to the three stooges. But when he showed up to work the next day, he was suspended. And a week later, he was fired. And after the store let him go, Barola took to social media to say he had no regrets. First off, I didn't see color when I confronted them. I seen criminals, uh, white, black, brown, purple, it didn't matter. A crime was being committed, and wrong is wrong, and a crime is a crime. And for those of you that are like, mind your business, let me tell you something. If something is happening right in front of me, I'm going to make it my business. Joining me now is Santino Barola, the fired store employee, and Eric Van Cleve, an investigator with the Arapaho Sheriff's Department. Okay, thank you both so much for being here. All right, Santino, I want you to know I think you're a hero. I think you should have gotten a raise. I don't quite understand what happened, but what was your reaction when you found out that you were, you know, suspended and then fired? Well, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate your support, but um, I I was shocked, you know, uh, devastated, honestly. Okay. Now, when you followed them out with your cell phone, what did you expect would happen? Uh, well, I, I was given a direct order 
by uh, the third person in charge to uh, get the license plate. And my initial reaction was to record, you know, better evidence to get their faces, the description of the vehicle and and the license plate. Okay, Santino, I don't mean to interrupt you. You're telling me that someone in the store who was a higher up told you to go out and get the license plate and you did a video of the license plate and they fire you? (laughs) Yes, ma'am. That's outrageous. Is this is this a, a, a market under Kroger's in Colorado? Yes, ma'am, it is. All right. Uh, all right. Is it Sheriff? Can you tell me whether or not you would ever have caught these people if it weren't for Santino? We were to caught him at some point, but without Santino's uh, video that he gave us and me being able to do a little bit cleaner investigation, it would have been a lot harder harder to do. His video to us immensely helped us in investigation. I was able to, with other detectives, we were able to put the driver uh, in custody in jail within 24 hours, and we're still working on the other two. We should have that wrapped up hopefully by the end of next week, we're hoping. So I wouldn't believe what I just heard if I hadn't been through the last couple of years. You know, the Babylon Bee has been a satire news site along with the onion to give us news that is unbelievable because it's not true. But satire no longer holds the weight it once did because real life is as bad or worse than most satire these days. And these last two or three years, like, I think a little bit before COVID and on through the whole COVID crisis, we have seen so many weird stories where justice is literally twisted. You listen to this story and you realize that this guy basically did everything right. He didn't approach the guys. He didn't try to place a hand on them or grab their merchandise. He just videotaped them and he did verbally talk to them and say, this is not smart activity, but he didn't physically engage them at all. And then when you hear the story, you find out that he was actually told by a boss to go get the license plate and he does it. And then he gets suspended and later fired. What about the criminal act of the people that stole the items from the store. We make criminal acts up where they don't exist, and then we say that it's perfectly acceptable to fire someone for taking a license plate and trying to hold criminals accountable. This is a problem, folks. We often say in, in Christian circles, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And in an abstract sense, that's something we've been fighting since the beginning of time. But we're seeing real-world examples, and this is one of them. I really hope this guy sues because I think he has grounds for a lawsuit. And not that I want him to make a ton of money off this. I've always said, if I ever did sue, it would not be for money. It would be for action. And so hopefully him pursuing legal action would be mainly for the result of getting the person that fired him 
dismissed from their job because they are clearly derelict in their duty. The sheriff's officer that was featured in this piece even said that the video that this brave man took was instrumental in catching the criminals. So how can you then turn around and fire the guy? But that's the world that we live in. Twisted. This is why an absolute truth worldview is important. This is why when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, it is of utmost importance. Because when we lose absolute truth, there's nothing else to go back to. The next story that I want to bring to your attention is an interview that Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, did this past week where he stressed the importance of parental rights. I think, again, the, the vast majority of Americans understand that Joe Biden has not been the education uh, education president, but counter, in fact, he's listened so much to the teachers' unions, and the teachers' yeah. unions have dictated so much of what's going on that they've forgotten who the kids belong to. Listen, the kids belong to parents, yeah. and not to the state, not not to politicians. They belong to parents, and this is one well, of the governor. biggest challenges that we've seen across the nation is who do kids belong to? They belong to parents. You gave voice to those parents and catapulted you into office. Now we see from the NEA, we can show you some of these books. This is the NEA held their summit, putting out summer reading books to celebrate. You can see here, gender, queer, white, fragility, Milo and Marcos. Parents don't want their kids reading this. Why doesn't the White House get that? Well, this is the same NEA that that counseled Biden to keep schools shut for an extended period of time. And it's the same NEA that said that that parents, in fact, were on the verge of being terrorists showing up at school board meetings. I mean, this is this is who is recommending what books to read for our kids. It's unprecedented books for the educators that they should read that. that they should read as well. I mean, the challenge we've got today is that there have been politicians and bureaucrats and the teachers associations and unions who believe that they are more important in kids' lives than parents. This is what we stood up for for Virginia. This is what spread across the nation. The parents' movement found ground zero right here in northern Virginia, and it has swept across the nation. This used to be be a topic that Republicans ran away from. We're running to it because I think Americans and and Virginians recognize it is time for parents to be not just at the table but at the head of the table. Thank you, Governor Glenn Youngkin, for supporting parents. I talk about education a lot on this podcast. I spent five years as a Christian school educator, and I can tell you unequivocally that I thank my parents regularly for choosing to homeschool me. I would not have achieved the academic success I did if they didn't make that difficult choice. Or maybe for them it wasn't difficult. I don't know. I'd have to ask them that specifically. But I do know that they made great sacrifices to do it, especially since at the time that they began homeschooling me, homeschooling was not legal in Michigan. It was actually challenged a few years later, and we were given the right to homeschool in the state of Michigan. Very important right, very important milestone in my family's lives and in the lives 
of hundreds of families throughout the state. But as I have said many times at this microphone, whether you choose public school, Christian school, or homeschooling, nothing can take away from the fact that you, as the parent, are primarily responsible for the education of your children. Any resource that you use for the education of your children, whether it be teachers at your Christian school, teachers at your public school, or homeschool resources, any of those resources should be framed with the idea of coming alongside parents and helping them train their children to be good citizens and model human beings but it is still the parents' responsibility to train up their children in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Why is it that we think that giving our children to someone else for 30 hours a week and then trying to impart wisdom to them the rest of the time is an equal equivalency? I don't understand it. We need to constantly be investing in our children, and if we are going to place them in another school, we need to constantly be holding the school accountable for what they are teaching our children. I love the fact that Glenn Young said at the end of this piece, we don't want parents just to be at the table. We want them to be at the head of the table. You see, one of the dangerous things about education today is that we have convinced parents that they are not capable of teaching their children. That, to me, is the saddest part of the modern education system, is we have said to parents, you are not capable of teaching and training your children, so leave your children in the hands of those who are. And yet we see story after story where teachers are imposing their views on the classroom, where they are prioritizing the discussion of sex and pronouns above reading and writing and arithmetic, and we scratch our heads and say, why has our society gotten so bad? Well, that is why. Because if we are going to have teachers, we need to hold them accountable to teach, and we need to let them know that if they are not going to teach, they are not going to last. And if we are going to have schools and school boards, we need to have school boards made up of parents who legitimately care about the future of their children. That is the bottom line. So I'm so thankful for people like Governor Glenn Youngkin and Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears who are truly fighting for the parents' rights. You know, there's a lot that people can go back and forth on a lot that people have allowed to slide in the past few years. But one thing that people will not waver on is their dedication to their children. So the best way to lose an election is to criticize parents. The next story that I want to share with you is some good news out of the state of Utah about the Bible. 
the Holy Bible is no longer banned in a Utah school district. I'll give you all a moment to applaud, right? Right? I mean, you know, so much talk about book banning these days. And, uh, we, you know, that that's another conversation in terms of what constitutes a ban and what doesn't constitute a ban. But here at PragerU Kids, we love to continually celebrate the First Amendment and all of our rights, and we want to teach our children our rights. And one of those rights under the First Amendment is, of course, freedom of religion and freedom of expression. And so... Let's get a load of this headline. Fox News, Utah School District puts Bible back on bookshelves after pushback because they're citing here it has significant, serious value. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Newsflash. It's not news that the Bible has significant, serious value. We've been talking about that for years and years and years here at PragerU and now at PragerU Kids. The Davis School District in Utah determined the Bible was, in fact, age-appropriate for all students. Forgive my chuckles here because this is just... Aren't we living in a preposterous age where the most unbelievable things are now believable as, you know, as far as the Bible being questionably age inappropriate, according to some parents in Utah? Let's take a look at this article now. I'll read you a bit of it. A school district in northern Utah on Tuesday reversed its prior decision to remove the Holy Bible from its middle and elementary schools. The Davis School District determined the texts were appropriate for students and will now be available in all district libraries, district officials said at a board meeting on Tuesday. Now, this reversal comes after 70 community members appealed last month's decision to ban the Bible over claims that it was not age appropriate. So here's what happened in a nutshell. And I was not aware of this story. If you happen to be in Utah and you know uh, maybe details of this story that I am uh, not including or that the Fox News article here is not including, please weigh in in the comments and we'll take a look. And, and, and you know, we love it when people um, add to the conversation in positive and productive ways. So last December... The district, which is north of Salt Lake City, received a request for the Bible to be reviewed in response to the state's sensitive materials law that passed that year, allowing different residents and people to challenge books found in schools and libraries that they thought to be inappropriate for children. We've been seeing across the country this past year plus a lot of books on library shelves readily available to minors on taxpayer funded properties such as schools uh, being available to students that have really explicit material in them. I'm not talking about you know, a d- d- diversity of thought, or I'm not talking about, you know, speech that is uh, questionably offensive. I'm talking about truly explicit descriptions and materials involving adult sexual themes, acts, etc., etc. Um, one of the most famous books that was making the rounds last year at a variety of high schools around the country was the book Gender Queer, which included, um, you know, dozens of very graphic um, um, sexual scenes that were really inappropriate to have at a school. So last year, Utah's parents were arguing that books like these are not appropriate. And then one parent, one wise guy, 
<laughs> I don't know if it was a man or a woman, but I'm just calling them a wise guy. One parent allegedly went to the district and said, well, you'll no doubt find that the Bible has no serious values for minors because it's pornographic. Okay, let's consider this for a moment. The Bible does reference sex. And it also talks about the consequences of sex done in the wrong way. But it does not condone deviant sexual behavior and in fact condemns it. And it does not speak in the graphic terms that some of these books that have been mentioned by parents at school board meetings use. The greatest irony to me about this whole debate is that parents who have gotten up at school board meetings to complain about graphic books in the school library have literally been told that they have to stop reading the book that they are reading in front of the school board because it's inappropriate to read in public. And a lot of parents are responding, hey, if this is inappropriate to read in public, why is it appropriate to read to my child in the classroom? And nobody has a good answer to that. And so the devil has persuaded people to use the argument that the Bible is graphic, so therefore you should ban it. People say the Bible is bad because it is pro-slavery, or they throw out any number of other complaints about the Bible. But let's consider the slavery argument for a second, because it's one of the more provocative arguments that people use. The Bible does indeed mention slavery and it does mention how a slave should respond to his master. But in the passage where it's talking about a slave responding to his master, it is not saying that slavery is a good thing. It is saying if you find yourself a slave, this is how to conduct yourself. And of course, in the Old Testament, we see references to slavery, and one of the key reasons for slavery in the Old Testament is endangered servitude. When you owed somebody a debt that you couldn't repay, you would spend a period of time as a slave to them to pay your debt. Again, this is not saying that slavery is an ideal or a good thing. No one should own another person, but you have to take things in context. And the secular world is horrific at taking things in context, especially as pertains to the Bible. We have come to a place in our culture where if you disagree with someone or their lifestyle, that means you hate them. That is not true. It is very possible to disagree with someone and still love them exponentially. The very reason that I talk about so many important issues on this podcast is because 
I love my listeners. I want them to embrace their full potential in the kingdom of God. And the only way that you can do that is to acknowledge the wrong way to do things and then choose to follow the right way. There is one way that leads to heaven. There is one way that leads to hell. Those are the only two places that you and I will occupy. The question is not whether we will have eternal life. The question is where will we spend that eternal life? And the Bible does say hard things. But it says those things because it wants us to be better people from having read it. Hebrew says it this way, that the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the idea of the Bible is to purge the bad from our lives and make us a new person through the work of the Holy Spirit who we read about in the Bible. So this attack on the Bible is clearly straight from the devil because we're not even talking about using the Bible in the classroom. See, this is the ironic thing is that most public schools have not used the Bible in the classroom for years. They don't even want to acknowledge it as literature. And so this whole complaint is get it off the shelf so the kids can't even pick it up off the library shelves because it's somehow inappropriate. And yet these books that contain graphic sexual acts are just giving children a way to express themselves. When I was a student, we never talked about sex in school. Now, I know that I was homeschooled for the majority of that, and my parents were Christian, and so they wouldn't talk about sex as part of the curriculum. They, of course, discussed it with us on a personal family level, and I'm thankful for those discussions. But there was no place in academics for them. During my brief time in in public school, I don't think I ever heard a teacher bring up anything sexual. And now that seems like the first thing that anybody wants to talk about. There's so much in our identity that is not sexual. And yet, now, if you don't get out there and identify yourself sexually, you're not living your best life. The reality is, folks, God made us who he made us for a reason. And yes, we are sexual beings. And yes, we do have a godly way to express that sexuality. But those discussions do not have a place in the classroom. Once again, this is something that parents need to take the lead on. This is not something that an academic institution should be spending a majority of their time on. And... You have so many teachers in the secular world these days doing these TikToks saying, I'm so glad that my elementary school kids or even younger kids understand pronouns. I'm so glad they understand that I'm non-binary. These people don't even realize, or maybe some of them do, but I think some of them legitimately do not even realize 
how much they are messing up the future generation. So if I could encourage you any one thing, it's continue to be involved in your children's lives. Continue to care what they are being exposed to. Continue to be ready for them to ask important questions and to be able to give an answer to those questions. The Bible is full of answers, but we need to spend time in the Bible in order to know them. Well, I'm about to wrap up the show for today, but before I do, I just want to read to you a little bit of a World Magazine article about issues related to the Texas abortion ban. Um, several months ago, the te- state of Texas passed a law that said abortion would not be allowed um, after the six-week mark or after the heartbeat, and other states followed suit. And then, of course, with the fall of Roe in June of last year, they were allowed to take effect. And so one of the things that has happened is that doctors have used the excuse of that to say that they can't treat things like ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages because they're not allowed to do an abortion. And I think it's pretty clear that this is a clever guise for not being willing to do their jobs and for for thumbing their nose against pro-lifers and saying, hey, if you won't let us do abortions, we're not even going to save the lives of women who wanted their babies but are having trouble with their pregnancies. Now, that being said, I do think there might be a place for clarification of these things uh, just because a lot of times people don't acknowledge self-evident truth these days. We've had legislations dealing with marriage because people didn't understand the definition of marriage. We have a legislation that passed the House recently that protects women's rights to just compete against women in sports because that apparently is not a self-evident truth now. So perhaps there could be clarification on these points in the legislations for the heartbeat bill to say that miscarriage and ectopic pregnancies are specifically excluded when we're talking about legal abortion. But it saddens me that this even has to be a discussion. My brother pointed me to a World Magazine article that came out recently called Do No Harm, and it's by a young lady from Grand Rapids, and I thought that I had her name here, uh, but I will make sure that I include her name on my blog. So you'll want to go to my blog, and I will have the link to this article and the author's name there. But I just want to read you a couple paragraphs that kind of close out the article. And this young lady says, one of the doctors I spoke with was Pensacola, Florida, OBGYN, William Lyle. When I talked with him over Zoom, he was still in his blue scrubs. He had just come from his hospital's labor and delivery unit where a mom gave birth to a healthy baby two weeks after her water broke at 32 weeks. Another recent patient had been 22 weeks pregnant with an incompetent cervix. She was showing early signs of infection and was ineligible for a 
a circulage. But the doctors admitted her to the hospital, put her on bed rest, started IV antibiotics, and waited to see how far they could get her. I saw her this morning. She's 24 weeks and 3 days, said Lyle. Three months later, he said the mother carried the baby until 30 weeks before going into active labor. The baby, he said, is doing extremely well in the NICU. In his mind, every pregnancy carries risk, but he's heard of too many physicians in his profession encountering risk and encouraging abortion or immediate induction of labor. We have a lot of physicians out there who just want to take the easy way. The goal of medicine should be to take the best way, he said. In Lyle's view, the whole purpose of recent developments in maternal fetal medicine is to find treatment options that are in the best interest of both mom and baby. Even though it's going to take more time, it's going to be more effort, more visits. Take the best way, not just the easy way. And I really like that uh, because I do feel like doctors take the easy way. I remember several years ago, my cousin called me up and he said, I don't know what to do. My wife and I just had some prenatal testing and indications are that our baby may have spina bifida. My wife is nervous about it. We know that you have friends who may have this. Can you tell me if you know anything about it? And so I was able to tell him. I said, well, a lot of times those tests are wrong. So that's the first thing to know. Doctors don't always know the answers. They don't always know if their prenatal diagnoses are true. The second thing I said was that I know many people with spina bifida who live quality lives, even if they are bound to a wheelchair. And one of the things that was going through my mind is, you know me, you know that I live a quality life, and if you believe that I live a quality life, then you have to believe that your child has the potential to live a quality life. I'm not sure how well I articulated that, but that was definitely going through my head as we were talking. Fast forward several months, the baby is born and is completely healthy. If my cousin had taken the conventional wisdom of the day, which is your child has this incurable problem in utero, maybe you want to choose abortion to avoid bringing that child into the world one less perfectly healthy child would be in the world because the doctors didn't know what they were talking about. Now, regardless of whether this child had spina bifida, it still deserved life. It still deserved the chance to live a quality life and to make an impact on the world. And I'm of a mind that whether a baby is here for 36 hours or 36 years or 80 years, it can still make a positive impact on the world. So I hope that as you've listened today, you've been encouraged and that you are more equipped to engage uh, in the marketplace of ideas 
with your friends, family, and coworkers. I hope that if you have been benefited by this show, that you will give me some feedback with the contact information that's about to roll. And above all, I hope that you will keep serving the best of masters. For Culture Watch, this is Andrew Gomison saying, have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.